if there's not enough education or support for the patient and there's not easy ways for patients to pay using, you know, payment plans such as monthly or things like this, I think, you know, the industry will continue to see, you know, patients not making payments, abandoning specimens, but you can really, I think, stop that with more education, easier ways for patients to pay, easier access to disposition forms, more choices like embryo donation. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I'm joined by Andrew Gairani. Andy worked in the fertility industry for 24 years. He worked for Organon in the beginning in sales, then went on to a sales director role for the National Fertility Division of CVS Caremark then went on to work in BizDev for DesignRx. And five years ago, in 2015, he started Embryo Options along with two of his other partners because of his strong relations in the fertility field and their similar experience and the problem they saw. And the solution that they built, Embryo Options, is a web-based application that allows fertility patients to pay cryostorage fees online, but more importantly, provides patients with disposition education. And resources. That's what we're going to talk about today. Those resources assist patients with making disposition decisions for their cryopreserved embryos, eggs, sperm, and continued storage that's no longer desired. Mr. Gairani, Andy, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, so I want to start with what was the impetus for why did we need a solution for disposition in the first place? What is the problem that providers and patients were seeing with disposition issues? Yeah, well, it was probably back in 2010 that my partners and I were observing that patients, you know, or people were on Facebook and they were finding each other for the purpose of, you know, donating embryos from one couple to another. And we saw that happening. And obviously, there's a lot of regulations and there are some important, you know, ASRM guidelines that go along with IVF centers conducting embryo donation procedures. And we saw this interaction happening with patients and there really wasn't much structure to that embryo donation, you know, offering that was happening in, in, the, in the world. So what we decided to do was create first an embryo donation platform that allowed centers or patients to donate anonymously to the center. And then the center could conduct an embryo donation procedure following guidelines. And then, you know, that quickly evolved into, well, how do we work out, you know, offering this embryo donation program to multiple patients who are prior preserving embryos, eggs, or sperm? And then it, we came up with the, the billing platform. So along with every, you know, cryopreservation bill that's being paid on a regular basis by a patient, somewhere along the line, they're going to have to make a disposition decision. 
So that's kind of how Embryo Options was born. The program, though, is it's apolitical. It does provide patients information about all their options, including on discard or donate to research or using their own embryos. But there is a robust infrastructure in the program that allows patients to donate embryos back to another couple. So what are some of the legal issues that could arise when it comes to embryo disposition for both the patient and the clinic if it's not done correctly? Well, I mean, you see in the news, right? We've seen in the news in the last few years or so. I mean, it gets a little sticky sometimes when couples develop embryos. They begin to cryopreserve them, and then later on down the road, the couples may have a divorce, right? And at that point, I mean, you, we, we've seen stories in the news where, you know, one party wants to keep the embryos and use them for procreation, and, you know, the other one does not. And so now there's this dispute between the, the divorcing couple where oftentimes it's gone to court, and usually the courts are deciding in, in favor of the party who does not want to have those embryos be used for, for procreation, but we, we're seeing those kinds of things pop up from, from the patient side of things. From the center side, I mean, there really isn't much, you know, regulation or laws, you know, concerning the cryopreservation of, of embryos, eggs, or sperm, but, you know, based on, you know, some things that have happened in the industry and how many, how much storing and how much freezing is occurring, I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere along the line, the government did step in and regulate, you know, freezing and how, you know, freezing is, is occurring at the, at the IVF center level to hold some of those centers accountable for how they handle that. So what's the issue with someone just freezing their embryos indefinitely maybe they just maybe they've got some sort of auto deduct or it's not terribly hard to collect and they just don't want to think about it and you know maybe $600 a year is expensive but maybe it's palatable what's the challenge in just having it go on indefinitely without you know making a decision about disposition I guess there's really not like a major challenge for the center, right? I mean, the the, the specimens don't, you know, they, they don't get any less viable from what we know the longer that they're in, in storage, right? As long as, you know, patients, you know, want to continue to store and they're paying their fee, I don't feel like most centers have a problem continuing to store the specimens. But due to, you know, the high demand of freezing and tank space, I think some centers are maybe finding themselves wishing that they had some type of previous policy that limited the amount of years that someone could store. And so I think the ASRM guidelines have come out and actually recommended that some of the initial consenting should, you know, let patients know that there is a limitation to how long the center may store the specimens, but I don't think that's really widely used in the consenting today. How often do you see centers that have policies in place with time limits? Yeah, so it was just, I think it was at this, the end of 2016, Griffin, that the ASRM was making recommendations that the initial consenting should probably have some information in there about how long a center will will store. Another provision was that there was a recommendation on informing patients how how old the primary patient could be for them to even, you know, you know, participate or allow an, an, a frozen embryo transfer to occur. So these, this type of consenting, you know, modification is ongoing, and we see it happening. But I don't think before, 
I would say, you know, last year or the year prior, there wasn't any, there wasn't much consenting around limitations on how long a patient could store at an IVF center. So from your experience, are most centers doing it now with new consents? Well, it's interesting because when we onboard an IVF center here at Embryo Options, it seems like everything cryo is being looked at, right? And so they're using the, that opportunity to look at consenting, look at, you know, billing options and things like that. And we are seeing centers who are coming on changing their consents and, you know, we'll go ahead and put those in the systems for, for people to, to see. But prior to 2016, just very few of that? I don't think so. No, I mean, I, I can say probably with a lot of high, with high confidence that there was probably not a lot of information in the initial consents that limited, you know, that informed patients that they had they could only store for 10 years or they could only store for seven years or they patients understood that by the time they reached the age of, you know, 55 or something like that, or the age 50, that the center would not, you know, conduct, you know, using those embryos in that type of, or that old of a patient. So, yeah, there wasn't much before that, I, I don't think, Griffin. So what do you find that you've got different disposition options? Talk about them in order of most common, most commonly elected going backwards, and then maybe why each one is the most popular. So I would say just for, just because most IVF centers, you know, always had the option to, to thaw and to discard, that was one of the more easier options to offer just by virtue of that being like one of the main offerings, I think that most patients were are, you know, choosing to, to to thaw and discard probably as number one to decide when to discontinue or as an option to discontinue storage. The other one probably is obviously just using your own embryos, right? So patients, you know, will store excess embryos for their own reproductive use. And they'll have a child or two, and they'll have maybe one or two embryos remaining, and they'll go back and they'll use those embryos. So I would say that's probably the second most common way that patients stop storage is they end up just depleting their own embryos through subsequent treatment attempts. Thirdly, I would say that, you know, donating possibly back to the center lab for research purposes or for quality assurance purposes and training purposes, and then donating to research through embryonic stem cell would probably be the fourth, but that's really just not too common too much anymore. And then, you know, donating to another couple is probably the, the, the lowest percentage, but it's becoming more and more popular and it's evolving because I think that the IVF center's basically didn't have a good infrastructure to offer embryo donation, but through embryo options, we're seeing about 8 to 10% of patients who have embryos deciding to donate them to, to another couple. So that, that you know, because now that, that offering is easily accessible through our application and it's streamlined for the center, we think that the embryo donation is, is not at its peak yet, that's for sure. Are all of your disposition options available to all of your clinics. For example, there's a small independent practice that doesn't have a relationship with an academic center or research center, but one of the patients wants their disposition to be donating the embryos for 
research. So that would mean that someone would have to transfer that to a university system or research facility. Are all of the disposition options open to every embryo options clinic? No, it's not. You know, basically, you know, we have academic institutions like like you had mentioned that they do have IRB approved studies to, you know, study embryos and implantation rates and you know PGS and biopsy and so there are some academic institutions that have those types of studies available to for, for patients to choose that option and we 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 put that information inside their portal right. But then there are smaller IVF centers where patients want to, for example, donate to research, and it'll, that those patients will we give them all of the contact information for stem cell research institutions that may be accepting, like Harvard and Stanford and New York Stem Cell Research Institution, and it's, it'll be on those patients to to reach out to those programs to see if they're accepting embryos, and if so, go through those entities' own consenting process. But I can tell you, if there's a smaller IVF center and a patient wants to donate to research, we're not really able to provide that research option from the academic institution. So the academic institutions are large enough that they're able to recruit enough patients and enough embryos to to uh, power their study. So yeah, we're not really able to you know mix the the disposition options together to provide more choice. We're kind of limited as to what the small the center can provide. Do clinics typically require cryostorage to be paid for at the time they begin treatment, or do, will they start an IVF cycle and then have storage paid for depending on how many embryos they get or after transfer? Mm-hmm. How are they... Yeah, most centers. Yeah, most centers, Griffin, right? Though they have a global treatment package where patients are, you know, paying a single fee, and that single fee is inclusive of, you know, diagnostic workups and, you know, IVF and ICSI, or, and usually there's one year of cryo storage included in that global treatment uh, package, right? But at the time of treatment. Patients who are, you know, opting to cryopreserve excess embryos, eggs, or sperm are asked to enroll into the embryo options program. So patients are enrolling in at the center, you know, using a web URL or, you know, a tablet. They're given information about embryo options. It's, you know, as it's co-branded with the IVF center. And so patients understand that, you know, they're enrolling into our program and that their account will be activated by their IVF center post-treatment in the event that they do have excess embryos, eggs, or sperm. And then any, any kind of payment method they put on file with embryo options will be used according to the to the center's payment plan. So there's it's very common that a brand new patient would come into our system, understand that we're partnered with the IVF center, and then, you know, they're they wouldn't engage into paying for storage fees until a year later. Got it. That solves that question mark that I had in my mind. So right. now that you've been doing this for a few years, are you starting to see an average of how long patients remain with embryo options before they choose a disposition? Are you starting to see an average length? Yeah, we are. We actually just kind of looked at that, like what's the dropout rate, right? So we started in... In 2015, with one of the largest IVF centers in the nation, and we just looked at some numbers, and it looks like 
so far, 30% of all of the patients who initially cryopreserved embryos in 15, 30% of them have a closed account inside our system at this point, and which means, you know, closed and a closed account means that they either turned in a paperwork to pursue a disposition option, authorizing the centers to exercise that disposition option, or it's very possible that the patient could have came in and, and used all of their own embryos in a subsequent FET cycle. So it's about, you know, about 30%, you know, drop off from 15 until now. There are some studies, though, that show that, you know, on the average, if patients have embryos in their, in, you know, their mid-30s, which is about the average age for patients who are seeking treatment, most patients will hold these embryos for, you know, five years or so as a, as a kind of like an insurance policy for expanding their own family and meeting their own reproductive goals. So we've got now I've got a, a few follow-up questions from there, but in the case of let's say the patient comes back for an FET, uses the remaining embryos, is it automatic of how embryo options receives that information? In other words, the embryos are used and then the account mm-hmm. closes, or does the either yeah. the patient yeah. or the clinic report something to you? Sure. Yeah, no, we have interfaces with most EMRs. In the absence of an interface with the electronic medical record system, we work no problem with access databases and spreadsheets and just really anything that we can. So we process these databases and we're able to determine, you know, all of the existing patients, for example, whose inventory got adjusted to zero. Those are freeze dates in our account, in our portal that are flagged for closure. And at the same time, we pick up any new freeze dates that are uh, being recorded in the cryo logs so that we can basically tag or flag those freeze dates to be activated for storage fees. Now that you're starting to see a drop yeah. off of, of 30% of accounts that close from having started in 2015, it could be very well that you've simply inherited a lot of the challenges that you solve for clinics. So what, what is that like? What is the default for you? In other words, if someone default on payment to embryo options or is non-responsive about changing their disposition. How do you then solve the very challenges that you've taken off of the plate of clinics? Yeah, well, that's one of probably the more attractive things about why some IVF centers have partnered with embryo options because, as you may know, Griffin, you know, most IVF centers, they're experts at, you know, treating people that suffer from infertility, right? And they're really good at billing for, you know, at the time of treatment, they do a great job at billing. But this is a, the the cryo storage bill is a, it's a recurrent bill. And it's a, it's a bill that they're really not really good at, you know, doing right. So there's some centers have challenges with, you know, pushing out an entire collections process, right? So for example, if a patient defaults on pain, you know, embryo options, you know, will send a, you know, a late notice to the patient at 30 days late and a 60 day late and a 90 day late. 
notice. And, you know, these notices let patients know that, you know, they're responsible for, you know, going online and looking at their disposition options and, and eventually choosing an option that no longer requires the the IVF center to continue to store the specimen. Or, you know, we reach out to patients at 75 days delinquent and we just ask them, you know, if they need some uh, help with, you know, talking to someone at their center, if they have questions about disposition or, you know, if they have a balance, then we can put them on a more convenient installment plan. You know, given, you know, permission from the center, we're, we're sometimes able to take people with hardships or people who are just not sure what they want to do, but they want to avoid not being late on their bill. We can definitely, you know, accommodate, you know, letting patients, you know, make payments that are very low, sometimes $25, $50 a month, just to buy them some time to, to figure out what they want to do. I think that some patients may, you know, neglect or not want to pay the bill because they think that if I don't pay the bill, then maybe the service will just automatically stop and I won't need to make the difficult decision of disposing of my embryos, right? Right. But that's that's pretty that's not the case, right? And I think that might be the main the major communication breakdown. We talk to patients a lot at, at embryo options and we hear from patients that I just figured if I didn't pay, you know, that you know this this would not, you know, I wouldn't be in any trouble for not paying this, right? And that's just not how it works. So we, we, we consult patients. We just, we basically let them know that the, the center, you know, you stored these embryos five years ago. And, you know, we understand that sometimes, and the centers understand that sometimes people change their minds about what they want to do with their, with their embryos, eggs, or sperm. And it's very, very important for them to you know, submit a signed disposition form, a, a new consent authorizing the center to, you know, proceed with a disposition option that, that kind of meets their needs, right? Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person before you put out an RFP or look for services before you get your house in order because by definition this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, 
practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. So you're interfacing with the lab and the clinic and how those two interface with each other is often very different from clinic to clinic and lab to lab. They've got different workflows. They have different patient management software. They have different EMRs. They've got different scheduling software. They've got different billing schedules. Sometimes all four of those are different from each other at the same group. And so how do you work with clinics and groups yeah. with really different systems. Yeah, that was the hardest part, Griffin, about, you know, starting embryo options is we, we built the platform and we Seems would go to into that the center. part for everybody that's trying to break into the field with a software or technical or system solution, right? And it says, yeah, it is because we're looking at, you know, anytime we go into a center, we're looking at either, you know, spreadsheets or they use a, a certain EMR or they use an access database. And sometimes the centers are using different practice management systems, different EMRs, Excel spreadsheets. And so when we work with an IVF center, we are really trying to figure out how to extract or capture all the data that we need to assist the centers with cryo billing all of their, their past patients. And so, yeah, it can definitely, it can be challenging, but the way that I think we've gotten a handle in it, on it is just through experience, right? So, you know, we keep continuing to go into centers and we're seeing trends that most centers will use this program or this program. And we've gotten used to being able to work with the centers and coach them on how to capture the data that we need and get it over to us. And we have agreements with most of the EMR companies out there right now to assist the IVF centers with getting us the data that we need to, to help them with their cryo billing. So how much do you bend to them versus how much do they bend to you? And maybe it's a question about your onboarding. So for instance, when we work with a client in implementation, we sometimes work with different developers. If they've got a developer, we work with them. If they've got an in-house marketer, we work with them. If they have different designers or different people, we can work with them. But our onboarding is first getting everything in accordance to our framework, meaning we can work with your developer, but you still have to get us CMS access to your website. We can work with your developer, but you've got to give us admin access to Google Tag Manager and add us to Search Console. And we can work with your physician liaison, but we need you to insert these exact data points into the reporting document that we have for you. So it's essentially, you know, we have to be able to work within their terms. We don't just come in and replace everything that they have, but in order to assess what they have, in order to counsel and in order to help with implementation, we need mm -hmm. to really have them adhere to our framework What's it like for you? Just in the startup world, I mean, we're trying to accommodate a lot, right? I mean, so when we go in, we have our best case scenarios where, you know, the EMR is, we have a collaboration with them and they send over the data and, and there's no issues. And in other cases, you know, we have to ask, you know, the centers to reach out to certain vendors to 
you know, ask them to work with us. And sometimes those don't, doesn't, doesn't go as well as we'd like. So, but like I said, over time, it seems like that embryo options is overcoming that quite well because of basically the more the program is growing and the more popular it becomes, you know, centers who want the program are inclined to do just about anything to help us get what we need to get them off the ground. How much of it is actually getting better at just knowing that, okay, if you're using this EMR, it's going to take about this long and these are going to be the challenges versus how much of that improvement really just comes from setting the expectation properly with the program and saying, this is probably what we're going to get caught up on. This is some of the challenges that you can expect. It's both. It's both, Griffin. And really, I mean, where it's becoming easier is like as we grow, we're hearing from the centers, okay, well, we use this system and this system and or we use this or, you know, this type of program. And we've already had to work with those entities prior with another center. And so, you know, we've, I think we're, we've exhausted, you know, understanding all the different systems out there now. And I can tell you that for the most part, we know who to talk to at those entities. They've already worked with us to help launch another center. And so it seems to be getting better and better in that regard as we learn and, you know, the, the landscape of all these different systems and actually make relate, you know, form relationships with people who are overseeing those, those applications in, in IVF centers. So. so talk about the adoption and retention of these centers, because often someone can roll out a portal that might be a great solution for a group, but it's just one more darn thing. They start to get into it and then they just abandon it altogether. So how do you all keep groups active, keep programs actually participating with embryo options, utilizing the solution and adopting mm-hmm. it into their practice workflow? Yeah, it's not been as challenging for embryo options, I think, as compared to other um new technological applications because really embryo options is being used as a as an application to to cryo bill all patients who are cryo preserving embryos eggs or sperm at the center and so I, a lack of compliance or use of our program would negatively impact the center's revenue that helps doesn't it it does yeah yeah, so, so we have pretty strong we have pretty strong compliance with that, and we don't see centers really deviating from you know having one system do all of the cryo billing. So, for example, in any one of our centers, it's not not common at all where they would say, okay, well, let's let embryo options cryo bill for these patients, but the center will remain billing these patients. So they don't want to use two different systems for cryo billing. So once we start with a program, they usually just have embryo options 100%, you know, take care of the billing. So embryo options is taking care of the billing. The patient is paying embryo options. Embryo options is paying the clinic. Yes, that's how it works. Then that's why you get good compliance. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the main reasons. Are you also partnering, do you only partner with clinics? Do you also partner with storage facilities as a means of, uh, well, an alternative to disposition, I suppose? In, uh, in other words, there are people that save 
things mm-hmm. for for decades that are much less valuable than embryos. I could see the a certain segment of the patient mm-hmm. population that would just want to store their embryos indefinitely. Do you mm-hmm. partner with any storage facilities or groups so where ongoing or very, very long-term storage is an option? Yep. Yep, we do. So there, there's definitely IVF centers that we have that they don't have the capacity to store embryos, eggs, and sperm long-term, and they outsource you know, to long-term storage banks. And so while Embryo Options is working with those centers who are not going to hold specimens for a really long time, we are partnered with a long-term storage facility to help that IVF center and that long-term storage facility facilitate transferring those specimens. There's a, there's quite a bit of paperwork that has to be transferred and medical records and things like that. So for those IVF centers who only hold for a short period of time, we have a long-term storage partner that can help streamline the, the transfer of those specimens from the IVF clinic to the long-term storage facility at a time period where the center you know, would, would like it to move and you know patients give authorization to allow that to happen. Your perhaps your company's vision going in the next five years? Let's start. Yeah, let's ask that. Where do you see Embryo Options going in the next five years? I definitely think that it, it, you know, it's growing rapidly right now in the U.S. We're probably at about, you know, a 20% market penetration. And it seems like more and more centers are, you know, jumping on board. And I think in the U.S., you can do much, much better than, than 20% market penetration. I, it's interesting that you bring the question up because we go to many of the regional and national you know, meetings and we run into international physicians and we're understanding that they have the exact same issues where cryobilling is it's difficult. There's a lot of nuances to it. It's tough. Patients don't have all the options. Uh, they need to do a better job. And so I, you know, we feel like with more growth, we're going to be able to to get into other other countries, no problem. Have you gotten yourself on a plane to Shanghai yet? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Maybe in the future. We might be talking about new markets in five years? For sure. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And that's an exciting thing too, because you know, we want to be in the international space because ultimately, you know, when you circle back to the embryo donation, and the embryo donation infrastructure that is set up today is set up where an IVF center has an embryo donation infrastructure using embryo options in a private setting. And most centers may want to keep it like that. But ultimately, we feel like you know more patients would be inclined to donate if they could set a condition that the recipient lived maybe in a different state or X miles away or maybe in another country. And so ultimately, the, the main goal, I think, of Embryo Options was to create a network of IVF centers so that you know, patients could donate to one another in, in a setting where it's safe, governed by the, the healthcare providers, but provided patients more comfort in, in, in donating based, off, based on geographical. Uh, I, haven't, you know. I haven't thought about this before, but how does the rise of donors and the rise of oocyte preservation affect embryo donation or embryo storage or the disposition of embryos? Is, is there a corollary effect somewhere? Well, I don't think so quite yet, right? I mean, egg preservation still 
fairly new and we do see centers, you know, growing in that area where, you know, young, you know, women are coming in and they're electing to cryopreserve their eggs. But, you know, really the main the main purpose of, you know, the the, the bulk of the business today, Griffin, is still egg freezing with the intention to fertilize these eggs to create embryos for the the, you know, to conduct, you know, treatment to help, you know, uh, overcome, you know, infertility. So I'd say the bulk of the elected egg freezing is really not impacting, you know, the amount of embryos I don't think yet are that are being created. I do think that eggs are being cryopreserved. I think that some centers who do a great job at it are doing that intentionally for letting the patients decide, okay, let's create, you know, we have 15 eggs, let's fertilize one or two or three instead of all 15. And so we're, we are seeing, you know, some centers where the patients have cryopreserved eggs, embryos, and sperm. And so the amount of embryos being created, I think, today may be decreasing because egg freezing has gotten so popular and so good, so effective. What are the big changes on the horizon, either for donation or disposition options or embryo storage? What are the big changes that you see happening in the field in the next three, five, seven years? You know, I, I, I think that, like I said, I think embryo donation will take off as long as, you know, patients are, are provided more choice and able to potentially, you know, engage in an embryo donation in like an open setting where they want to know the recipient on some level, you know, and there's would be kind of defined in our in our world as an open donation, very analogous to a an open adoption. I think that could definitely evolve. I think that, you know, patients some patients holding embryos are anguished about what to do with them. And, you know, if they had more outlets to do things that were altruistic with those excess embryos, such as donating to research or donating to another couple, I think that they would find themselves, you know, doing those versus, you know, versus the thaw option. In way of, you know, the future, I, I mean, there could be regulation put on how long, you know, a patient can store embryos. You know, I think in the UK, there's a limitation that you can only store for five years. Don't quote me on that, but there is some, you know, five to 10 years, something like that. And then they have to, the patient has to make a choice. But as far as donate to research, we don't see that one probably much as as an option anymore. Most embryonic stem cell research institutions are focusing on adult stem cells versus embryonic. And so they, most of them are not accepting embryos for, for research any longer. So, you know, I think those are the main the main things. More altruistic options in, in way of embryo donation would probably be the biggest change. I think anybody could probably see in this space in the future. How would you want to conclude with our field about where you want to see the direction go, or the awareness that you would want the field to come to to know about options for embryo disposition, storage, and donation? Yeah, I, I feel like. It, you know, this would probably be a message to the, the the fertility industry as a whole. From working with, you know, up to 100,000 patients now, we take, you know, many inbound calls. We talk to patients. And there's definitely, there's a conundrum that patients are dealing with concerning excess embryos. They, they oftentimes will lose contact with their healthcare providers. 
And, you know, over the course of storing for four or five years, if there's not enough education or support for the patient, and there's not easy ways for patients to pay using, you know, payment plans such as monthly or things like this, I think, you know, the industry will continue to see, you know, patients not making payments, abandoning specimens, but you can really, I think, stop that with more education, easier ways for patients to pay, easier access to disposition forms, more choices like embryo donation available to patients and making patients just more aware that, you know, you do have a responsibility to to pay these fees and you do also have a responsibility to to make a decision when storage is no longer desired. And the way that you can do that is through optimal billing and good education. And that way there's no there's no gap between the IVF center and the patient as patients continue to store embryos for four or five years beyond their treatment. Andy Guyrani, thank you very much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. You're welcome. Thank you, Christian. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.